All right, let's open our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, as we continue our verse-by-verse kind of jog through this book. It's going to be a slow jog. John was about 95 years old or so. He was the last surviving original apostle when the Lord came to speak to him as he was exiled on a really abandoned island, Patmos, in the middle of of the sea, 32 miles off the coast. He was there for his faith, but he was an old guy. And yet, it is there that the Lord chose to give him the visions of uh, the Lord's glory, the book that we know as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, if you will. It is the final conclusion and fulfillment of everything that you read in your Bible up to this point. It is the, the, the finish, if you will. We spent three, year, uh, three years, three weeks, <laughs> seemed like three years, in it? In chapter 1, as John gave us his introduction and then his greeting before being able to share with us the first vision that he had of the, of the glorified Lord, we then began chapter 2 last week with the first of seven letters that consist of chapter 2 and 3 of Jesus' letters to the churches at the time, all of them in Asia Minor. Uh, these, less, these letters are kind of the second portion of the book. If you look at chapter 1, verse 19, The Lord said to John, I want you to write the things that you've seen, which is what he did in chapter 1. Write the things that are, which is what the church age is in chapter 2 and 3. And then the third portion, and that which will take place after these things. And chapter 4 begins with the words, after these things. So it's really not too hard to get lost. You can't really get lost if you just follow the communication. So tonight we're going to take the second letter of these seven uh, that the Lord has given to John. We, we talked about in the first week, I think, the, the number seven, when it's used in a symbolic will, uh, way, speaks of completeness, right? Or, or of, of wholeness, uh, maturity, if you will. So we, we've said to you a couple of times that these seven letters that Jesus wrote to all first century churches express the full counsel of God to the church. In fact, this is the only first-person direct communication that we have with Jesus and the church. So we have a lot of other things in the scriptures, but here's the Lord speaking directly to the church, everything that is in his heart. And since all of these seven churches uh, existed at one time, first century, um, it's obviously a lesson to every church in every generation that can face these kind of issues. We we also told you, I think, as we were going through, that, that in many ways these seven churches exemplify the church ages, or the church age, I should say, from the first century until the last age or the last church that then will be waiting for the Lord to come in the rapture. So Ephesus, in many ways, what we looked at last week, exemplified the first century church through about 100 AD. Smyrna tonight that we are going to look at represents the church age from roughly 100 AD through 312 A.D. The reason we say that it is, it was the worst time for the church's persecution in its history. Seven million believers were put to death in 200 years. And it was all a a function of the the different uh, pharaohs that came to power. Uh, In in 312, Constantine came to power. You might know if you know a little bit about church history. And he turned the persecution and killing of the church to just saying, hey, let's make peace, let everybody, let's get along. And the church became inundated with all kinds of false doctrines and and great um, kind of compromise. And so by the time we get to the next church in in verse 12, maybe your Bible says the compromising church, the church of of Pergamos. So in one sense, it is prophetic as the churches go through, but look, they're they're first and foremost for our own personal growth. So when you read these letters, I, I would say that you say to yourself, Lord, how am I supposed to be? And these letters will address that. When it comes to church behavior, what does God want us to be? And then prophetically, what can we become or what have we become? So those are kind of the steps that we're looking into the church. Every church letter has a specific subject. Last week we looked at Ephesus, which was a church that had left its first love. The motivation for serving the Lord grew weary, grew cold, if you will. And the Lord advised us to remember where we were once and to repent of where we've ended up and then to return to where we started. Tonight, Smyrna is the persecuted church, the church under fire. I would say to you, at least by comparison, it is probably something that we know little about. 
I know that the church is not exactly in favor in our culture. Um, maybe never as badly as it's been the last few years uh, in our generation, but we have a whole lot of freedom compared to what some folks are facing in the church tonight. So to the extent that you are persecuted for your faith, I think these promises from Jesus and these words to, from him are, are going to be helpful. To the extent that you've avoided all of those things, I guess you have to ask yourself, how did I avoid all of them? And how come no one seems to be upset with me and my faith? Whenever we suffer or are in a position of suffering, most of us believe that our suffering is worse than anyone else. Oh, I had a cold, I almost died. Or, oh, I was hungry, I was starving. <laughs> Which probably isn't so. Looking at most of us, we could go a long time before we starved. You know, the old complaint that I, I, I complained I had no shoes till I met a man with no feet. Um, is it, it, really, <laughs> you know, not a lesson that we learn so easily. We, we sometimes see our difficulties as unparalleled. But, but I would suggest to you that if you think you're suffering tonight as a Christian, you might want to consider this church. Jesus' words to them in comfort would be the same words that he would speak to you if you are suffering for his glory, for his sake, for, for serving the Lord. Surely, if you would walk faithfully with Jesus in this world, you're going to catch it from time to time. Paul wrote to Timothy in his last letter, if you're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. He didn't say you might. He said it's coming your way. Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 16, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Not you might have, you will have. But you be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So there's no way to really escape these things, but Smyrna was certainly an extreme case for sure and a time of tremendous suffering for the faith. We don't have much of this kind of suffering in America yet. We may get to that point. We are the target sometimes of folks. Um, it is usually clouded in some other issues where they don't really say we hate your God, but that's, I think, what they mean most of the time. But the churches in many other places face merciless kind of endless suffering at the hands of wicked men. See if you can track down the ch underground church in China. It is probably one of the toughest places to go. Uh, go to the Sudan. We have a friend who his ministry is in the Sudan. And, and, and he <laughs> risks his neck every time they have service. You never know who the government's going to be for that week. And what 16-year-old kid's got a gun and wants to take you out. In the Mideast, it can be very difficult. In Africa, it is still very difficult in some of the provinces. But this is unparalleled. This was the extreme case. And like I said, it re it's representative of that church history age as well. But every generation has people that are suffering. And we don't suffer much for our faith. Maybe somebody doesn't like you. Maybe you get passed over for a job. Maybe somebody calls you a name. Oh, boy, that's really got to hurt, you know but they need to get saved. Let me read you one insight from the days of Smyrna. One man, he was three years old when his father, a murderer, died. His mother took over the family trade. She remarried and eventually was murdered by the boy's stepfather who killed her with a dish of poison mushrooms. By the time he was 14 years old, he had already committed his own first murder, but it wouldn't be his last. He would kill out of anger and out of spite, out of jealousy, without remorse and without sorrow. He got married for the first time at 15, killed his wife at 16, killed his second wife, and then had the husband of his third wife killed as well. He was an ugly man, bull neck, flat nose, huge eyebrows. At 31 years old, he was sentenced to death by flogging. He ran for his life into his slave's basement and slit his own throat. His name, Nero, the fellow that Paul stood before and had his life taken from him. He began this persecution, the first of, of 10 very consecutive uh, Caesars who would terrorize the church for over 200 years. So Smyrna speaks of the suffering of that time and of that era, and it speaks, I think, to anyone tonight who is suffering for their faith in Christ. 
and have a, has a difficult time standing, and yet the Lord has called them to that place of suffering. Maybe you have it very easy. Maybe you have it easy because you haven't opened your mouth. That's not good. Or maybe there has been some real persecution that have come your way. We're certainly, like I said, seeing a little bit in, in the reaction from the government and from others this past year or two to, against the believer. But Jesus speaks to Smyrna, the, the, the church and the saints, who he sees under tremendous fire, but not because they were foolish, but because they were faithful. We, we mentioned last, uh, last week to you, I want to keep using the word year for some reason, last week we to you that, that all of these letters follow the same outline. There is a... Um, a destination that is mentioned for the letter. There is a description of Jesus, the author, that is taken from the vision of John in chapter 1 to kind of describe what part of, of what John's vision is of Jesus that the Lord wants to remind them of in the letter that he is writing. There is then a commendation, usually, not always. Then it is followed sometimes by a rebuke or an exhortation and finally ending with a warning or with a promise. Verse 1 says this, or verse 8 says this, of verse 1 of this letter. And the angel, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. We mentioned to you last time that the word achalos is pastor or overseer. That's a definition from chapter 1, verse 20. So in all of these letters, Jesus writes to the spiritual leadership of the church so that they might pass along the word of God to the saints. Words of his comfort and blessings and encouragement this one written to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was located, if you have a map, about 35 miles or so north of where Ephesus was. Uh, if you look at a map today in Turkey, it's the city of Kudasi. Uh, it, it rivaled in its, its beauty and its commerce. It was a seaport town. It was nicknamed in the first century the, the, the beauty and the, ornament, and the most ornamental in Asia. A lot of Jews lived here. There were lots of pagan worship here. Uh, history tells us that they had a street of gold in the middle of Smyrna. On the one end stood the temple of Zeus. On the other end stood the temple of Sibylle, who was the mother of the gods. There was a, a temple to Apollos in town. It was the center of emperor worship, because by the time that Nero came to the throne, every emperor declared themselves to be God, that you had to worship the emperor as God, if you, if you worshiped anything but him, you're in danger for your life. Um, so, at least in the time of this writing, the, the emperor Tiberius's temple stood in the middle of town. There is nothing in scripture that helps us to understand <clears throat> who founded the church here. I don't think it is a poor assumption to believe that probably the Ephesians planted it since it was only 30 miles down the road. But we are guessing, we can't tell you that for sure. But unlike Ephesus or Kudasi, which lies in ruins, the old city, if you will, uh, it's beautiful to see, by the way, but it, it is definitely leveled. The city of Smyrna still uh, exists today in Turkey under the Muslim name Izmir. In fact, it's the second largest port city next to Istanbul in the country. There's still 3.3 million people that live in what was then Smyrna. The name Smyrna means um, uh, bitterness or myrrh. It was a sweet kind of perfume that they used to embalm the dead. <clears throat> the interesting thing about myrrh is it doesn't smell like anything until you crush it. So the fragrance stays within until it is crushed, which is an interesting picture, isn't it? So uh, Jesus was given, remember, those three gifts by the, by the three wise men prophetically after his birth. And one of them was myrrh, right? But it spoke of his death, that he was going to be crushed. And, but in his death, this sweetness would come for us, life. And so it was very symbolic and very prophetic. At his second coming, by the way, in, in Isaiah chapter 60, verse I think it's verse 6, you will read there that when the Lord returns, it will speak of the gold of his royalty and of the incense of his worship, but they'll leave off the myrrh because the Lord has already been crushed. He's now coming to rule. And so you'll see that kind of dropped off. But Smyrna is the, is the suffering church <clears throat> that is facing tremendous 
persecution, and even martyrdom for their faith. Like I said, this is a long way from where we are. So it is to this pastor of this church in this very uh, idolatrous city that the Lord writes this letter to the church there. And then he, he takes the title for himself. These things says the first and the last who was dead, and yet he has come to life. Jesus, again, using this descriptive portion from John's vision, says of himself, and is really in keeping with, I think, Smyrna's experience, that the Lord had triumphed over death, he had found victory over suffering. So he will say in verse 11 that they can expect complete victory in him as well. But he takes that title for himself. I was dead and I'm alive. You may have to die for your faith, but you're going to live. And he promises that in verse 11. There's that scripture in Matthew that says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. And then they can't do anything else to the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So the devil may cause great problems, but our victory is assured. We're going to be with Jesus. And so that's the title that he takes, very appropriate, obviously, to the church that was so, so under pressure. And then here's the commendation. I know your works. Jesus begins with these words in every letter, in all of the seven. And that, I think that either is a, a, a promise of real joy, like, good, I'm glad the Lord knows. Or it's terrifying. If you're trying to hide something, he knows. But notice that the Lord was very aware of their faithful service under the midst of tremendous persecution. And I, I, it always comforts me to know that God knows my heart and keeps good records. And when people misjudge or, yeah, I guess that's the right word, that, that he never does. So it's something you just go, oh, the Lord will fix it. You know, he knows. And so when you feel like maybe no one appreciates how hard you've had to work or how much sacrifice you've had to make or how faithful you've had to be or what that cost you, know this, God knows. He's writing it all down. He keeps perfect record. The problem is if you keep records, he won't, right? You, you just go in secret and the Lord will reward you openly. So it's a blessing to know that. This letter in particular, verses 8 through 11, very small, has absolutely no words of condemnation in it whatsoever. No word of correction. Unlike the next letter to the church in Pergamos, this church has done considerably well. And the Lord has nothing negative to say to them at all. I know your works, and I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty, but you're rich. God was keenly aware of how much they were suffering, what, what they had had to give up, what they had had to go without, what they had lost in the process, what was taken from there. And the Lord says to them, I know exactly what you've had to do to follow me. To follow me. From a political standpoint in the first century, um, the suffering for the church in Smyrna would have been, have brought, been brought to them by the hands of the Romans they would take and feed Christians to the lions. They would allow wild dogs to tear them apart. They would put pitch over their bodies and use them to light up the, the hallways in the cities. Well documented, not making anything up. It was a terrible time. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, um, was burned at the stake there in 155 A.D. Polycarp was a disciple of John's. He would take over John's pastorate in Ephesus for a time, would end up 40 miles to the north as the pastor of Smyrna. He was called the Bishop of Smyrna. You can find it in history books. It isn't in the Bible, but it is historically written. He was uh, in his 20s, when he began to serve and, and minister to Tertullian and Irenaeus, who are two early church fathers, both write of them. In fact, Tertullian writes of the Smyrna church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the suffering of Smyrna has led to the salvation of many. The night that Polycarp was killed in Smyrna by the Romans, he had a dream that he was going to be burned at the stake. He got together with the church that next morning and he said to them, the Lord has shown me that today I'm going to die. 
When he was taken by the Roman centurion, he was given the option to deny Jesus and honor Caesar. Just say it and you live. Polycarp, according to Tertullian, responded, For 86 years I have served my king, and he has been very faithful to me. Shall I deny him now? You are threatening me with a fire that will burn for less than an hour while you're in danger of a fire that will burn forever. Polycarp was then put into the fire pit. He refused to be tied down, said he would stand on his own accord. The fire was lit, and according to Tertullian, the fire, rather than coming out, moved away from him. A Roman soldier struck him with a spear in the heart. The blood put out the fire, and he died, all for seeking the Lord. This was a tough place to be in church. Imagine coming to church tonight and wondering if the authorities might be lying in wait in the bushes. Maybe you'll go to prison. Throw away the key. Maybe you'll just be shot or had your head removed from your shoulders. Would you still come? No, i got to be wise. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to avoid. I know your tribulation, the Lord says. It had been grossly unfair. It has been extremely unbearable. They had perse- uh, persevered for years loving the Lord more than their own lives. But that was the political pressure. Economically, according to history again, they suffered tremendously for their faith. They were denied, the church was, or first century, employment. Their goods were seized. The word for poverty here is the word in Greek for absolute or abject poverty. You really have nothing you could call your own. How did they get so poor? Well, according to history, The Roman government was offering in the first century a 10% reward for anyone who turned in anyone they knew that was practicing the Christian faith. You would get 10% of what they owned. The rat would receive the 10%, (laughs) while the person being betrayed would be convicted. When Paul wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 10, this is what he wrote. You have had compassion upon me in my change, in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. And Paul mentions this practice of taking from people the very things they owned in exchange for their disobedience by walking in faith. Religiously, many in the Jewish community were used by the enemy, by Satan, to blaspheme the church and began to work against the church rather than allow it to exist with it. While the church was a a sect of Judaism, it was relatively quiet. When they got off on their own, they became a tremendous threat. So wherever Paul went, he would stir stir up this persecution. They would claim to be worshipers of God. Jesus will correct that claim here by saying, in a few verses, they are of the synagogue of Satan. Tough words. Literally to say, these are religious people who um, are pretending to know God, but they don't know him. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, said in chapter uh, 2, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly in the flesh. He's a Jew who is one inwardly. His circumcision is in his heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but it's from God. Later on to the Philadelphian church in chapter 3, verse um, 9, the Lord will say, Indeed, I will make those of this church or the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. Indeed, I will make them come and bow before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So much of the persecution against the church at Smyrna was, was political some of it economic, but a lot of it religious. It came from religious people who didn't believe in Jesus. Oh, they they claim to know God, but they hate you for your faith. And that's the suffering that came their way. It is certainly true that historically the greatest persecution the church has ever faced doesn't come from the world, it comes from the the church, from from the religious people who oppose God's word. And Smyrna saints had very few friends among the religious in town. 
So the Lord says to this <laughs> very difficult place to meet, I know the oppression that you're facing. I know the afflictions that you're suffering. Uh, the veneer has worn thin. The persecution has begun in earnest. The word tribulation here, I know your tribulation is the word for pressure from without. It's not internal pressure, you know, where you fight in your own heart with your flesh. This is, this is talking specifically about those outside of, of your life making life difficult for you because of your faith. It probably wasn't a good city to wear a witness t-shirt. I belong to Jesus, not going to be good for you. Not a good place to carry a Bible around. The world may never know what it costs you to follow Jesus, but let me assure you, the Lord does. And just stay faithful. Because in the end, the reward is eternal life. So it's really foolish to try to cash in for something less, isn't it? The Lord says to them, I know your poverty. I know what you've lost and, and how broke you are and how little you have. But he said, you're rich. Jesus saw them as rich, though outwardly they'd lost virtually everything in life. Why? Well, biblically it means because you have eternal rewards, right? Your, your riches are, are in terms of spiritual goods, aren't they? It, it's all a matter of perspective. You sit in this church in Smyrna and you go, man, we're broke, we're, we can't, we don't have, you know, we, we have nothing. <laughs> we have nothing. And the Lord goes, oh, you're rich, that's easy for you to say. But we have nothing. And yet, if you look through God's eyes, they were rich. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 8, in writing about Jesus, he said of the Lord, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, could be made rich. That's God's perspective of, of you and I tonight. Maybe you have very little in the world, but if you have a faith and a trust in Jesus, you'll have riches in your testimony, riches in your fruit. You'll have a rich life, and you'll have a rich life to come. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the way Paul put it to the Ephesians. So you're rich. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we are sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. We're poor, but we're making many rich. James wrote in chapter 2, Listen, my brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world who are rich in faith and who are heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's who God has chosen. So we're rich. You can look at the world tonight and go, man, these guys are so successful. They have everything they want. Really? But you're going to heaven. You've got eternity worked out. They've got retirement worked out maybe. But that's it. That's not enough. And if you if you got a little older, you know, you'll realize life goes by pretty fast. If you walked into Smyrna, you could not accurately judge this fellowship by external measures. You would look around and say, boy, what a rotten, run-down place. You know, people are, are missing, they're being arrested, they have very little power, they, more tears than joy, a funeral every week. What's going on over there? Their riches were being laid aside, but they weren't. They were being stored in heaven. Solomon would write in Proverbs, there is one who makes himself rich, but he has nothing. There are others who make themselves poor, and yet they have great riches. God's perspective. It's all about perspective, right? You look at your life from God's perspective. You start comparing yourself in the world, you can get frustrated. You'll always find someone that has more than you have that you wish you had. Always someone ahead of you. But in Christ, <laughs> you have everything that you need. If you know that to be so, it'll, sh it'll, it'll shift your priorities, right? I think Peter wrote in chapter 3 of Second Peter, the, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will burn with a fervent heat. The earth and the works in it will be burned up. And then he said, if you know this, what kind of person would you be? If you knew that everything you saw held or wished for, is going to burn up. Everything that you have that's riches, you can't see. But you have it all. We have to see it through God's eyes, beyond the material world, beyond the advantages, and consider what the Lord has said, the spiritual realities. This is, this is Smyrna, which stands in 
absolutely sharp contrast to the first letter that you'll read. Uh, no, it isn't the first letter. Um, towards the end of, of chapter uh, 3 to the, the Laodicean church, where, where the Lord has no commendation for them at all. He's got, this is filled with commendation, no condemnation. <laughs> the Laodicean church is pretty much filled with condemnation. And, and yet he, if you look at that, that scripture back in chapter 7, it says, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and am in need of nothing, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, then you'll be rich. And come and get some white garments, then you can be clothed so that your nakedness won't be your shame. Perspective. Outwardly, few people would want to join this church. I think a lot of people would want to join the Laodicean church because they had it all. <laughs> they were big and successful. It really doesn't matter how other people see you, though. It matters how God sees you. Don't you agree? These folks God saw as rich. The Laodiceans God saw as impoverished. You might want to mention that next time you talk to any of your faith movement folks who name it and claim it and question your faith in God. The reality of our, of our true faith in Christ is that most of us have great freedom to worship. But here, as in other countries, these folks had no place to turn or to look but up. They just had to look up. Peter and John, when they started their ministries, you know, were challenged early on. Do you remember? And they, they, they were told not to pray, preach anymore in Jesus' name. And Peter responded and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. It doesn't really matter what you want. We've got to please the Lord. The conflict for us as Christians tonight is far different than this church. It may be that you, you know, have to battle with being, having your integrity questions or, or maybe you, you have a choice between being honest and not so honest or, or the, the, the unwillingness to join your so-called friends in living a life that you really don't want to live. You know, we have to make choices based on how we live, but you, know, you can be lo looked at as a lunatic or some religious nut. I remember as a young kid when I got saved, going to church three or four days a week because we drive out to Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck and people call you like a religious nut. Oh, you're some kind of Jesus freak? And I thought, well, got to be somebody's freak, you know? God knows what this church was going through. If, if you're going through it tonight for your faith, God knows. Maybe no one else realizes it, but he does. So in Smyrna, the, the the challenge was pretty clear. It was physical death. For us, it is spiritual death that lurks without. Jesus knows what we face. He knows how we can overcome it. He, he warns us even about it, that we should be careful and keep our eyes on him. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. When you're persecuted for righteousness, that's, that's great to the Lord. <laughs> We can suffer harsh words, but they suffered life and limb. We, we, we suffer misrepresentation. The media is certainly good at misrepresenting the believer. They were forced to decide if they believed enough in the Lord to walk openly. I know, he says, verse 9, the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They are instead of the synagogue of Satan. He refers, Jesus does, to the slanderous, unfair speech by those pretending to be godly who hated them. Now, I like the fact that the Lord is wise to the criticism, the mockery, the slander, the misrepresentation that you face in a world that doesn't know God as you stand up for the Lord. And, and that just keeps me going more often than not. It's just the Lord knows. I can just leave it with him. He can deal with the synagogue of Satan. That's, pretty, that's a pretty strong title, isn't it? He uses it twice. Synagogue speaks of, of worship and religion and devotion. Satan <laughs> speaks for himself. But this is an apt description from Jesus' mouth 
of the religious hatred, religious hatred, I should say, carried out supposedly in the name of the Lord against God's people. It's amazing the, the type of people that turn on believers, and they're usually church people from just not the right church. Well, that's the commendation. Verse 10, rather than a rebuke, which there is none, here is an exhortation. Do not fear any of those things which are about to, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. But be faithful, even unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Verse 10 is, is frightening, I think, if you're in the church because you hear these words twice. Be, don't be afraid of those things that are a about to, you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you in jail. This was future. This is the only church, I should say, besides uh, the church uh, of Philadelphia where there are no rebukes or corrections. But the Lord does say to them, I want you to not be afraid. I want you to not be afraid. However, things are about to get worse. I don't know if this is a letter you really want. It was about as bad as it could be. And the Lord said, don't worry, I know what you're going through. And it's about to get worse. This present suffering was a forerunner to what was yet to come. Satan's opposition would continue. Some would be thrown in jail and the enemy would seek to stamp out the light. I said, I think sometime this evening, it got to the point about 100 AD that if you didn't worship Caesar, you died. You had to verbalize your, uh, your allegiance to the, to the god Caesar. The Roman Colosseum stones are still stained with the blood of the martyrs. However, if you've been to Rome and been on a tour, you should know that the, the tour groups that handle Rome um, uh, guides, I should say, will tell you that no Christian ever died there, that no Christian ever died in the catacombs. Our group, when we did our Footsteps of Paul this last time, even when we went to the Vatican, were given special headsets. We had our own so people could hear us, but when we went to the Vatican, we were given special ones, and the reason we had to use theirs is they had minders that were listening to what I had to say. And if we said too much, they took us out and told us to come back. So there's a revisionist history that is presented even in Rome, but, but there's enough information if you don't go to Rome, just get out a history book anywhere you like, written by whoever you trust. And, and you'll find that the deaths in, in Rome in the first century were horrific. Jesus says here in verse 9 that Satan is behind it all, right? The accuser of the brethren is the one with which we have warfare. He's behind the disruption. He's behind the dissension. He's behind the pain, the wicked influence. No doubt much of the struggles you and I face today as believers is a warfare with, with Satan himself. We need God's armor. <laughs> but our wife and our husband, the boss, our neighbor is not the enemy. Satan's our enemy. So don't fear. Don't fear what? The future. There is a natural, I think, tendency to shrink away from suffering. Um, I had to go back to the dentist yesterday. I've been having these teeth worked on. I have a bunch of these implants. This one just decided to fall out yesterday. I thought, I'm going to be good up here this, morning, this evening because I would be lisping. It's, it wouldn't have been. I'm not good at words anyway. This will be worse. But they got it back in. But I thought, nobody looks forward to going to the dentist, do they? You go because you have to. You don't go because you, oh, Dennis Day. Nobody does that. Nobody likes to suffer. We don't like, we don't run towards suffering. We run away from it. It makes perfect sense. And yet, God says to them, I don't want you to be afraid about what is coming your way, what you're about to suffer, what the devil is about to do to some of you by having you arrested and thrown in prison and, and put through tremendous tribulation to have your faith tested. And some of you are going to have to be faithful to the very end, to the, to the point that you've been killed. But stay with it, because I'm going to give you a crown of life. God always sets the limits for Satan. You know that, right? When Job, uh, or Job records Jesus' 
or, or the Lord, I should say, is meeting with, with Satan. And, and Satan came with some pretty big accusations against Job, who the Lord said there was no one like him on the, on the earth. He was as faithful as they could be. And Satan made a bunch of wild accusations. Of course, he's faithful to you. Give him everything he wants. Take that away. He'll curse you to your face. Well, that didn't work. So Satan came again. He said, well, of course, you know, he's faithful to you. Look, if you lay your hand upon his body, if you make him physically sick, he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said, all right, lay your hand on him, but you're not going to take his life. And again, it didn't really work out. So Satan is, in, in one way, he works for God, doesn't he? He doesn't know it because he's that dumb. But he does. He does what the Lord allows him to do. God uses him for his own purposes. And then in the end, he's going to be judged for his hatefulness. So God sets limits upon the enemy. I think it is helpful that you and I remember that there are limits set. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, all right, then I'll suffer my infirmities. I just want to be dependable upon the Lord. So the Lord says to them, it's going to get worse for you before it gets better. But I know what you're going through. And I need you to be faithful. And your faith is going to be tested. If you get through it, there's life waiting for you. The devil is about to throw some of you in prison. You're in warfare tonight. Aren't we in a fort warfare? Don't you feel it? <laughs> It is at warfare times when our courage is tested. It's easy to be courageous in faith when there's no tri trial. Usually faith comes when you have to personally begin to pay for your faith. That's when fear sets in. Oh, now I have to decide what am I going to do? Maybe that's why so many believers, even in our culture, are silent. They don't speak up for the Lord. They don't, they don't voice the biblical opinions because, you know, being inactive and quiet brings a lot of ease to my life, retreating to the comfort zone where no one knows my faith. But that's biblically called worldliness. <laughs> that's not good. Notice what he says to them. Your faith is going to be tested. God allows tests for your benefit. And I think it is a good lesson to learn that Peter wrote, in this you should greatly enjoy, uh, rejoice, even if that now for a little while, if it is necessary, you be grieved by the various trials that you're facing, so that you might find the genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, which perishes, trusted by the fire, and it'll turn out to be the praise and to the honor and to the glory of Jesus at his appearing. You want to come out good, don't you? We don't like to be tested because we'd rather just go, I'm great. I'm strong. I can handle it. And the Lord will say, can you? Let's see if you can handle it. Let's see how you do. It was the early church uh, persecution that drove the wheat out of Jerusalem. If you read the book of Acts, nobody left town till Stephen got killed. Everybody's comfortable. Oh, this is great. Amen, bro. It's our little church right here. The Lord said, reach the whole world. They got in a huddle and reached Jerusalem. Stephen died. Everyone went running for their lives. And as they ran... They carried a Bible, and the word began to go out, and hundreds and then thousands began to hear. The, the Jewish granary was driven out to the world. Notice that Jesus gives them two exhortations here. Stop being afraid first. Don't be afraid of these things. And, and down at the end of the verse, and be faithful unto death. Don't be afraid. Stay faithful. Be fearless. Be faithful. Great words of command, I think, a message from the Lord who would like to see us do well in a very pagan, hostile society in which we live, where Satan rules over many, where he is the God of this world, where God's standards in public life are oftentimes set aside. Faithful unto death. Think about that for a while for yourself. Would you be faithful unto death? It is hard to stay faithful unto death when you won't be faithful in life. If you're not going to do it now, you're certainly not going to do it at the other end of a barrel of a gun. But no compromise means no defeat. We have nothing to lose in giving Jesus our life. When Peter and James were arrested by Herod there in Acts chapter 12, James lost his head. He was beheaded immediately. Peter was left on death row until after the feast days, but he had 
been scheduled to be executed in the night before, the church praying, the Lord deciding Peter wasn't done, sent an angel of the Lord to get Peter out of prison. Now, I don't know if you remember the story there in Acts 12, but Peter was so sound asleep, the, the angel had to actually kick him to wake him up. I don't know if that's, a, would you sleep that solidly on the night before they were going to behead you? I think you'd probably be up all night going, man, I don't know, this doesn't sound good at all. He was that asleep. He was just, he was just a rest. Awesome, Peter. Be faithful unto death. It may come to that. For us, I, I can't see it in our country, but maybe, maybe so. It can, if you decide to be a missionary, it can certainly be so. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, there are two primary applications, and let me share them with you, and you can think about them for yourself. Primarily, when the words 10 days are used kind of uh, in a nonspecific manner in the Scriptures, it usually implies it's a short time, or it is just a little while. Um, when Eleazar, in, in Genesis chapter 24, had been sent to bring Rebekah back to Isaac, Right as a, as a bride, the Lord had shown him that it was to be this girl. He had met with the family. He said to her, would you like to come and meet Isaac? I have a, a man for you. The Lord has sent me, you know, and he explained the whole spiritual things. And she said, yeah, I'm coming. And, and her brother and her mother said to Eliezer, just let the young woman stay with us for a few days, at least 10, and then you can go really has no bearing. It's just an offhanded kind of, there's 10 days, and just have them stay a little while, and then you can leave. Uh, we, we read in Nehemiah, as Nehemiah in chapter 5 of his book describes the kind of food that was prepared for him, and that he also prepared for a very big staff that helped him to take care of the country. He, he, he wrote in there, every 10 days, this is how much food we have to collect. Really, another offhanded comment. It's just, you know, it's kind of a reference to, uh, you know, every 10 days, but it seems to be that short time again. I've, I've been handed these kind of things. When Daniel was being tempted, or not tempted, I should say tested in, in, in captivity in Babylon, and he didn't want to eat the food of the heathen, he talked to the jailer or to the fellow that was watching over him, and he said, look, why don't you test us by giving us what amounted to kosher food, if you will, why don't you test your servants for 10 days? Let us eat the vegetables, and then you can look at us and see how we look. But again, it's offhanded. It just it has the implication that, hey, just for a little while, you know, let us see it through, and then we'll, we'll see how it turns out. When Paul was on trial in, in, in Acts 25, in front of Festus, Festus came to Caesarea. Paul hoped he'd finally get to have a trial. He'd been in jail for, uh, accused without a hearing for two years. And it says there that when, when Festus came into town, it says he stayed more than 10 days. And then he tried to, Paul tried to get in to see him, but it, the implication was, you know, he was there for a while and then he wasn't able to speak to him. So in, in that regard, as evidenced by its use, the, the Bible would say that the term 10 days would mean a short time. Uh, Jesus suffered for a little while and then he is in glory. We will suffer in this life for a little while and compared to eternally, eternity is not very long, right? No matter how long it would take. On a prophetic standpoint, just going away from the obvious, um, there were ten, exactly 10 waves of persecution under 10 Roman emperors. They were butchers, starting in, with Domitian after he came to the throne in 96 and, and going forward to 2 or 312 B.C., uh, AD, I should say, and 7 million Christians were put to death. It was a horrendous time. It could be a reference to those 10 waves of persecution from a prophetic standpoint. Would they have read it that way? Absolutely not. <laughs> I would hope that they would have read the 10 days as it's going to be just a little while. Um, from us looking at it from this time and from this time and, and this, this vantage point, it's certainly both of them fit. I don't think we add or subtract to the Bible. If we come to those conclusions, I'll leave them to you. But I think those are the two things, the two ways we could understand the 10 days and feel comfortable with it. But the Lord says, for 10 days, you're going to be thrown into prison. Just be faithful, even if you die. And I'm going to give you, 
a crown of life. Promise to everyone who's faithful to the end, the crown of life. It'll offset all of the trials and difficulties. I suspect when you get to heaven, you're going to forget all of this. It'll have, it'll have been worth it, won't it? More than worth it. If we endure, Paul said to Timothy, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. We've got to, we've got to see this through to the end. So I love the, 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 the life, right? The crown of life. By the way, there's lots of crowns in the Bible. There's a crown of righteousness for godly living. Paul mentions it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. There's a crown of glory for faithful shepherds, according to Peter. There's a crown of gold in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. We're going to get to that. There's a crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's an incorruptible crown. I think all of the crowns follow our death, though. Every one of them speaks about what happens when you're done, when this life is over. And Paul was looking forward to them. He, he said to Timothy, there's light up for me, a crown of righteousness. Not just for me, everybody who, who loves is appearing. So, you know, if you're going through it tonight, maybe you feel like you're getting the short end of the stick, and maybe you are. I would hope to be able to assure you by Jesus' own words that it's worth the effort. Leave, lose whatever you have to here. Just make him happy now. Serve him. You will not lose. You'll only gain. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you a crown of life. Finish well. There's a lot of people that start a marathon and quit. I heard a comedian the other day, I thought it was very funny. He said, if you ever go and watch a marathon, the longer the marathon goes, the fatter people become. No, that's true, isn't it? All the skinny guys are at front running really fast, and the guys at the back are just like me and the rest of you, I'm thinking. Oh, I, I, I thought that was, never mind, I thought it was funnier than you did, apparently. All right. <laughs> Anyway, just run to finish, right? Don't stop on mile 22. I guess that's what I'm saying. No more ad-libbing. I'm sticking to with my nose. Verse 11. <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. And he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus calls upon in every letter, by the way, the individual saint to hear what he has to say. That's really his call. If you have an ear to hear, it's singular. And then the word spirit to the churches is plural. So take it personally and hear it collectively. What does the Lord want from you? What would the Lord want from us? If I were to say to you, hey, stand up and tell me what Jesus said to you tonight, what would your answer be? As you've been sitting listening to me for the last 50 minutes, what has God said to your heart? Through his word, what, what, what resonated with you? Oh, I, that's, that's what I needed to hear. That's what God wants to tell me. What would it be? He ends by saying to them, if you're an overcomer, the world can deal out affliction and pain and even martyrdom, but the faithful will not face the second death. If you go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who is a part of the first resurrection upon him, the second death has no power. We'll rule and, and reign with Jesus as kings and priests for a thousand years. You know, if you die twice, <laughs> die to yourself, live for him, and you're going to live. The, the flip side of the crown of life, by the way, is eternal damnation. Lake of fire, final consequence of unbelief. We certainly don't want to get to that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. To the, who has ear, he personally who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church as a whole. The believers in Smyrna were facing intense, crushing persecution. But they were, 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 were I guess, being crushed, and then out of their life came the, the fragrance of Jesus. The world was not worthy of them, Hebrews 11 tells us. They were poor, outwardly, spiritually rich in God's eyes, faithful, and were headed for victory. They were to prepare for the hostility that they would get from the world as they lived for Jesus. But the Lord wanted them to know that he knew of their struggles. He was in charge of their life. He promised them he would help. There's no word of rebuke, the difficulty. By the way, this church had, if you have this kind of pressure, nobody's hanging around. 
The only thing you're left with are true believers. No more posers, no one that can be complacent. Only the faithful, the fervent, the dedicated remained. If you look at a church historically through the ages, tribulation has never hurt the church at all. It has only refined it and purified it. I remember years ago, Corey Temboom used to come out to Costa Mesa. And since I grew up in Holland, I could speak Dutch with her. So I always look forward to, to seeing her. Uh, and I don't know if you know her story, but one of the, the stories that she always, often told was, was being at a, a believers meeting in Moscow uh, when two Russian soldiers broke down a door as they were having Bible study, came in with two guns drawn and said, you have five minutes to renounce Jesus or you die. And she said about 80% of the Bible study got up and left, just ran for their lives. And the two uh, Russian soldiers said, great, now that we know who the true church is, we've come to worship with you. So um, <laughs> are we listening, ears to hear? We might very well be a church under fire eventually. Um, we have it real easy right now. We should take advantage of it. Let's go out there and cause some trouble. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> Let's get out there and, 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 and preach the gospel, shall we? Well, next week, if you're in a compromising position, just don't come next week. It is not a pleasant bunch of letters, but we have to add it to the list as the Lord wants us to speak to all of our situations. So read ahead, just down through verse 17, Pergamos Church, uh, another convicting letter from the Lord that he'll say to us, if you have ears to hear, let's listen to what the Lord is saying to the church. I hope God has spoken to you tonight. Father, thank you that you are with us in, in good times and in not so good times when things are easy and when they're very difficult, that you are uh, promised to, to the church as you did to the church in Smyrna to, to be with them. You, you, you brought great blessings to their life. You, you, you told them it was going to get harder before it got better, but the, the, the reward of faithfulness after a short time would, it, would be to have a crown of life. You were aware of their suffering. You were aware of their tribulation. You, you, you knew the, about their works. You, you knew those who were blaspheming your, your name under religious guises. You, you, you were very aware of what we were going through in this life as we sought to live for you. And so, Lord, tonight, for those that are suffering, maybe from family being rejected by them, maybe from, from promotion in this world, maybe from from other things that are hard to explain, friends that have turned on, on us or turned on them, misjudgments, mischaracterizations, lumping us together as Christians with some kind of radical groups because we believe in Christ. Lord, we trust you. And may you continue to pour out your spirit upon us in these last days. And may we carry the message of your son with, with not only great boldness, but with great pride. We know the way out. We know the way out. You, you've sent your son. There's a hope for all men. And there's a power of your spirit that can convict hearts. For those that are suffering tonight, Lord, in, in whatever manner, may your peace be theirs. May their joy fill their hearts. May you keep them with joy. And Lord, may you bring the joy of the Lord to be our strength. And the peace of God that passes all understanding, that you would hold us. And that we would be a church in these last days that would be, would be, would make you proud to call us your children. Use us, Lord. Move in our midst. May we not be so worldly minded that we're no earthly good. If tonight you don't know Jesus, would you come and talk to one of the pastors? We'd love to, to tell you what he can do for you, what he has done. And if, he, if you're willing... He's willing to take up residence in your life and begin to make your life his own. You can be born again, saved from a life of, of judgment to come of, of, the, of the destructiveness of sin. God has great plans for you. But he wants you to be willing. It's a love relationship that, that is based on your choice. I, I want to follow, Lord. I want to believe. I want to trust you. So far, we have it pretty easy. The church has not really had too much pressure upon it. But who knows what comes next? Let, Lord, help us to build our houses now in the, in the sunshine. 
so we might ready for whatever you bring our way. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.